Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, This morning we'll consider the last of my list of passages that some have used to argue against eternal life, against eternal salvation. Uh, I will say that I started out with uh, about 10 pages of notes, and usually I want about four pages of notes. And uh, so I did a lot of whittling down yesterday. You're welcome. I didn't want to give this two weeks or more on this single passage. So probably next week we'll start looking at um, the two creations, the two natures, which is the foundation, really, Uh, for our fuller understanding of eternal life. The passage that we're going to look at this morning, I I really consider it to be one of the most difficult passages to sort out in the matter of uh, why it does not speak of losing eternal life. I'll tell you at the outset that I believe it refers to unsaved people. Uh, And I've heard that most of my life, but I never heard anybody sit down and say, okay, here's why. I mean, apart from the fact that we already know eternal life is eternal. Eternal salvation is eternal. But this is what this means, but it still says all that stuff. How how can I know for sure that that's what the writer meant? And then I'll make a confession. Don't, Don't feel like you need to be in a hurry to understand everything in the Word of God. What you want to do is to believe the word of God. What you want to do is to stand on the truths that you have solidly uh, had confirmed to your heart, you know are basically true through the Bible, but you're going to hit things that are difficult and you'll just at a certain point you realize I just need to scratch my head and move on. I never knew quite how to deal with this passage. I believed what I had been taught because I believed that eternal life is eternal. And I was puzzling over it, and I don't worry about those things after, you know, many years of preaching sermons, I know the Lord comes through. (laughs) And so Tuesday evening I had gone to bed and I felt strongly led to get up, and I, I went in and studied some more, and it all sort of fell open to me. So my confession, I'm still learning from the things of God. Isn't that a good thing? We don't run out of things to learn. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. So whoever this is talking about, this is one of those verses that would make it fairly clear that if you could lose it, you can't get it back. There's one sacrifice, and uh, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. Uh, You know, we looked at that verse. But uh, no longer... No, no sacrifice available if we, can, if we sin willfully uh, after we've received the knowledge of the truth. But what does await? A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? There's a kind of a difficult thought there. By which he was sanctified, a common thing, 
and insulted the spirit of grace. As I have considered this passage in the past, I was just looking at the immediate context. And that's what we often do. If we look at the surrounding verses of a passage and even at the passage itself, we begin to see a context and it helps our understanding. Uh, We always want to remember the context of the Bible. We've got that framework. That's how I could know without knowing exactly how to approach this text. I have the context of the Bible that tells me that eternal life is eternal, eternal salvation is eternal. But I began to, uh, as I felt led, I read the book of Hebrews. And so what I did was to put this uh, passage into the context of what the writer of Hebrews believed, what I see in other places in the book regarding the matter of eternal salvation. And of course, what we discover is the writer of the book of Hebrews absolutely believed that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ obtained for us a salvation that is broad, all-encompassing for those who believe, and permanent. So we'll look at some of those passages that give us context from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9 and verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, But with his own blood, he entered, that is, Christ entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained redemption. Oh, wait, I left a word out. Having obtained eternal redemption. If we have been redeemed, guess what? It's an eternal redemption. So what I see there is simply that the writer of Hebrews believed absolutely That when Jesus shed his own blood in payment for our sins, to redeem us from sin, to redeem us from the guilt of sin, uh, that redemption is something that can't go away. Again, as I've said almost perpetually, words mean something. It's an eternal redemption. If it could go away, it wasn't eternal. And so that's what the writer believed. He did not believe that our salvation... Our redemption is dependent upon our later actions, upon our uh, strength, upon our lack of failure. It was dependent on the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what the writer believed. And so when I read the words of Hebrews 10, 26 through 29, that passage that I opened with, I have to keep that in mind as a part of the context for understanding those words. The writer believed eternal redemption, that redemption is an eternal thing that doesn't go away. And so I can't interpret that passage as saying, well, I could lose my salvation. Hebrews 9, verses 25 and 26, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I didn't get that one on screen, did I? To put away sin. Now, under the Old Covenant, it speaks of the yearly sacrifice in which the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies once a year. 
uh, in, on the Day of Atonement. There were also many other sacrifices done. There was the sin offerings done repeatedly. And none of those really dealt with the issue. So every time another sin cropped up, every time another year passed, there had to be another sacrifice. Because that sacrifice in the past did not cover these new sins. So got to have another sacrifice. Well, Jesus was offered once. A little vocabulary, the word translated to put away means to cancel. Null and void. You ever write void on a check? That's really what it means. It means to negate, to abolish, to set aside. And so when Jesus made his offering for sin, he put away sin. Now, the writer doesn't make any distinction between the sins committed before Jesus offered himself. That's how the Old Testament offerings worked. It was, it was the past, looking back. There's those sins. Let's deal with them now. Move on. Uh-oh, more sins. Deal with it again. He didn't make a distinction between sins that existed before Christ's sacrifice and those that existed after Christ's sacrifice. And neither does any passage speaking of redemption, speaking of atonement, speaking of the forgiveness of sins that we receive at salvation, say, well, this is just for those that are past. Now, going forward, you're more or less on your own. No, Jesus offered himself once to take away sins. And so a part of the context for Hebrews 10, 26 through 29 is the fact that the writer understood that Jesus' putting away of sin is, well, it was final. For those who trust in him, it was comprehensive. He put away our sins. Uh, you ever tell a kid to put away things? I saw a video of a dog putting away its toys. My dogs don't do that. But, you know, if you tell your kid, you know, pick up all these things and put them away. You bring in clean clothes. Put away these clean clothes. If half of them are left out, they're not put away. They're not dealt with. Jesus put away sin. And so it, it, was, a, it was a complete thing. Then Hebrews 10, uh, 14, talking about a forever work that Christ has done in us and for us. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Perfected for how long? Well, just until you sin again. That's not what he said. That's not what the writer believed. Uh, perfected forever. And, uh, boy, that, <laughs> that's a permanent thing. Uh, also, Hebrews 2.10. This is looking again at the word perfect or perfected. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And Hebrews 5, 8, and 9, though he was a son, Christ, yet he learned, it has to do with learning by experience, by going through something. Uh, he went through a situation uh, manifesting what obedience was by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, what is perfection in the Bible? It can speak ultimately in the final day when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ of being made absolutely perfect in his sight. But what it really means is to be complete. How many of you have said or have heard said somebody has a brand new baby? Oh, just perfect. Really? 
You mean there's nothing to be added to this child? He's going to be like this little tiny thing all of his life, unable to speak, unable to think, unable to focus his eyes or her eyes. No, it means that they are complete for where they are to be right now. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ made us complete in the sense that he made us a new creation. We're going to get into that. He gave us a new life that did not exist before. And there is no imperfection. There is no incompleteness to that life. It can grow. It can develop. It can mature in us as we submit to the Lord and learn more of Christ. But he did something that completed us forever when he sanctified us and made us a part of the outworking of God's plan. So, yeah, he made us, made us exactly what we should be. And then he wants us to grow, but nevertheless, there's not anything lacking in that new creation. Um, Christ was not made perfect as our Savior until he died for us. Isn't that right? It wasn't complete. That child is complete. One, two, three, four, five fingers, five fingers, ten toes. You know, he wasn't complete as a savior until he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Then, as savior, he could completely take that place. You see what I'm saying? So don't don't misunderstand the the sanctification, the perfection that's been accomplished. But what we see is, is, again, is not, there's no straying of the writer's thoughts from the fact that the work that Jesus did for us is forever, not for temporary. Jesus perfected forever those who are sanctified. Now, I need to pause here and insert some considerations about sanctification. And it's going to be important later on in the lesson. So don't just let it go in one ear and out the other. In its most basic sense, the word sanctification has to do with a person or a thing being set apart for God's use. It need not be a person, it can be a thing. In the Old Testament, they had the vessels and the, for the temple, they had the temple itself, they had the tabernacle. All these things were sanctified, set apart by the sprinkling of blood. And so, that's a part of sanctification. It's just a setting apart for God's use. Now, it doesn't mean that his purpose will be fulfilled. The temple vessel, sanctified for God's use. Belshazzar decides to throw a feast and praise his idols, his gods, his false gods, using the temple vessels as drinking vessels. A child of God, though sanctified and separated set apart for God's use, may choose to go astray. And some of us sitting here or standing here, me, chose at a certain point in life to go astray and not to be used of God, to go in a very different direction. Nevertheless, that does not mean that God had not set aside, sanctified those temple vessels or the straying child of God. Different sorts of sanctification. I'm not going to turn to these scriptures, but in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, we read about unbelieving husbands being sanctified by the faith of the wife, or the unbelieving wife being sanctified by the faith of the husband. And I have actually read 
people arguing that that meant that those people got saved, although they didn't believe. Talk about a travesty. If you go on and read it, it, you can begin to understand that it just means that through the faith of the child of God, I'm in a marriage that's unfortunate, but it is a marriage. It is consecrated to God. And this man or this woman, though they are an unbeliever, this is not just an ungodly, immoral relationship. In the sight of God, there is a marriage that has taken place. This person has been set apart to be my spouse. And so, no spiritual change, just making it clear to those that are in that situation is still a marriage. God sees a sanctification there by your faith. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it speaks of obtaining from immorality, and it calls it sanctification. Uh, it's not that the person has changed in any way. It's just that they continue to be used of God. 1 Timothy 4, 5 speaks of our food being sanctified. Now, this isn't, you know, we don't say magic words, and suddenly this food is, as they do in some religion, body of Christ. It doesn't magically change the food. It is now set apart. We've given thanks. We thank God for it. We've asked God to bless it to the use of our bodies, and he will. He does. Uh, it's still just food, but it is set apart for the use of one of God's children. And it, all of it is set apart. And I think this is important. You know, you better clean up your plate because that is sanctified food. Huh? No, it's all sanctified, but if need be, you just scrape off some of it. You ever eat something or have somebody, you know, if you're married? I could tell a story of long, long ago when I declined to eat what was set before me. I went to a mess hall in the army another time, and I looked at my plate, and I had liver and a bunch of other stuff, and I poked the liver, and it was rare. You'd, I liked liver. Rarely, I don't think so. So I walked from the chow line to the garbage can and scraped it off. Um, it's still just food. Even if you don't eat it, you, it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And I could go on with different applications of the word sanctification. And it's important to remember that it's not just a single use, only ever talking about that work that Jesus did for us when he died for us on the cross and when we accepted him. We'll get back to that. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 tells us that God no longer remembers our sins. The guilt of those sins has been remitted. And that's why there will never be another sacrifice for sins. Then he adds their sins and their lawlessness or lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. How many sins are forgotten? How many sins does he say he won't remember anymore? You know, he knows the end from the beginning. He's omniscient. There are no surprises for God. Uh, when, when the plan of salvation was set down, the whole, God inhabits eternity. The whole scope of time was spread out before him. No secrets. He knew about all those sins. How many of those sins has he said that he will forget and not remember anymore? Again, what sins did Jesus die for? Just past sins? 
Again, I, I mentioned earlier, 1 Peter 2.24, who himself bore our sins in his own body. Now, you know the difference between a noun and an adjective. An adjective is a word that describes the noun. And how is that noun, sins, described? Our sins. That's the only descriptive word. That's the only limiting word. I heard uh, that so-called Bishop Tutu, uh, he's a strange little man. I don't know if he's still alive. Even the devil will be saved eventually. <laughs> and I thought, you're nuttier than you look, sir. I'm sorry. But he didn't die for the angels. He died for us, for our sins. Uh, it doesn't say just the sins before we were saved. It doesn't limit what sins. It's just he died, he atoned for our sins, and their lawless deeds. Which ones? He died for all of them. I will remember no more. It's an inclusive phrase, our sins. It leaves out none. Uh, and then in Romans 6 and verse 10, uh, the beginning of that verse, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. This offering dealt with all of our sins. If it had not, then there would have to be, as there were under the law, many, many, many sacrifices. He died for our sins once for all. And it covered all of our sins. Uh, Again, Hebrews ten eighteen says, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. The definition of that Greek word remission is a release, a remission, a pardon. Uh, those sins are done. They're gone. They're remembered no more. When we get into the two creations, this is, it's still a mystery that it takes the Spirit to re reveal to you, but it becomes a little clearer as to how this is. Uh, so once again, we see the writer of Hebrews affirming that salvation is not conditioned on our good works. Uh, back to Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. I'll read through it again quickly. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment. That's all that remains if we sin willfully. Understand the context. A certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more? Of how much more? Where am I in my notes? There we go. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the spirit of grace. And so after all of those verses in which we see that the writer of Hebrews absolutely believed in an eternal work of salvation on our behalf, some want us to discard all of those and to believe instead that we can once again be in danger of condemnation for our sins. And I say no. We have been pardoned, not paroled. We weren't put on probation for certain problems, but we were declared righteous before the judgment seat. It's an established situation. 
So instead of laying aside all of those things that give us an assurance and a confidence of eternal life, I'd suggest that instead we, we approach our consideration of those difficult verses uh, with this. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Are you confident that you have eternal life? There is not a reason in the scripture or out of the scripture for you ever to cast that confidence in his eternal work aside. Confidence. You know, I have an absolute confidence in the person, in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever hire a contractor and that person failed you? Jesus never fails. I have confidence in his work. I have confidence that he paid the debt for every one of my sins. I have confidence that as the high priest who now lives to make intercession for me, his intercession is effectual. It does its job. I have confidence that his sacrifice is truly, completely, uh, it has truly, completely, eternally finished the work necessary to save me. I have confidence that I can safely trust in him and need not cast away that confidence because of my weaknesses, and I have plenty, because of my failures, and I have those too. Let's look at at, uh, some of the wording, and I'm going to have to hurry through this, but some of the wording of that passage, for if we sin willfully, I'd like a show of hands of everybody in this room who has never, ever sinned willfully since you became a child of God. Putting my hands in my pockets, okay? No hands. Every child of God at some point has sinned, usually at several points, has sinned willfully. And so it's hard for me to think of a sin that would not be willful, but that's another issue. It doesn't, it doesn't say after we were saved, though, the sin willfully after they're saved. It says instead, uh, if we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, um, many of you, maybe all of you, are on Bob and Missy's uh, email list. And she sent out a, an email recently giving some updates. And she told the story of a little girl in Buena Vista, Paraguay, who on July 23rd was taken to Sunday school. And there she heard about the Lord Jesus Christ. She heard about sin, how Jesus died for sin, died for her sins. And she accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior. And she went home and she told her parents all about it. Now, I don't remember. I, I think Bob and Missy went to visit maybe later that day. And they discovered that the little girl had already told her parents the truth. And they wound up accepting Christ. But how many people have received the knowledge of the truth and not accepted Christ? I've preached more than one salvation sermon when I knew that there were unsaved people there and no response. After we have received the knowledge of the truth, the word we is the writer's acknowledgement that he too is a part of the human race. Uh, we speak, uh, I can say we, we as humans are sinful. That doesn't mean I'm sinning right now. Different uh, prophets in the Old Testament, writers, uh, Daniel identified himself with wicked, sinful, rebellious Israel. We have sinned. I don't believe he committed those sins. He was identifying just, if we sin, if we humans sin, if we commit this sin after we've received the knowledge of the truth, we're in trouble. 
you have to take that next step and believe, receive, accept that truth, accept the Lord Jesus Christ. But there is one specific sin that is mentioned who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace. What this is is a final rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bring in sanctification again. Uh, We already looked briefly at sanctification, and we considered that context matters. And again, the fact that Sanctification is not a word with only one shade of meaning, which some people don't take time to find out. What portion of the human race was set apart for God's use through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, there is a segment of Christendom that believes in what I consider to be an awful doctrine, limited atonement. God decided in advance for no reason but to show his honor and glory and power and that he wouldn't save everybody. Jesus died for some, but not everybody. Got some firefighters and ex-firefighters in this room. All right, there's a firefighter that wants to show how good he is. There's an apartment building on fire, and he decides he's going to save half of the occupants and let the others burn just to show how good he is and what he can do if he puts forth the effort We call that person a criminal, crazy, lots of things, right? That's how they're describing God. Uh, What portion of the human race did Jesus die for? 1 Timothy 4.10 says, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men. But especially, particularly, there's a special application of those who believe. And so the whole human race is set apart for God's use. Some refuse. After we have received that sanctification of the Spirit when we're saved, we can refuse to be used. Some stop the process much earlier and refuse Him. And they put themselves in the camp of those who uh, scorned Him, reviled Him, rejected Him, when he was crucified. In 1 Timothy 4, well, I read that already. Let me come back here. Um, Where am I? There we go. Uh, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. If you commit those, those terrible rejecting sins, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation, a certain definite, it's happening. Expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. This is what awaits Believers, it's a tragic thing. It's a grievous thing. It's an awful thing. It's a thing in which we can't be gleeful, as some seem to be, for some strange reason. Um, This is what awaits those who refuse to accept God's free gift through the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal salvation. Eternal redemption. Eternal life. Everlasting righteousness. Nothing remains for them. But for us, John 5, 24, oops, I'm getting ahead of myself there. I don't have it in there. Don't know what happened. I'll just have to read it. Some of you have heard me state the fact that this is the verse that God used to confirm to me that eternal life is eternal. 
John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth, and I'm reading from the old King James, and believeth on him that sent me, hath, does have, right now, everlasting life, and shall not, no loopholes, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. I thank God for the full assurance and the peace that he gives through his faithful, his changeless, his perfect promises regarding what Christ has done on our behalf.